Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Thanks for joining and worshiping with us today. Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend. It's a long weekend. We remember those who have given their lives in service to this country, and we're thankful for that. At the same time, I think uh, in light of events this past week, the tragedy in Uvalde in southwest Texas, I think there's a soberness for us as we gather, um, as we seek the Lord's grace and mercy in a fallen and broken world. So uh, if you would, um, why don't you go ahead and pray with me? We want to pray and, and lift up our country, the people involved in this tragedy, and, and pray for God's grace. Father, we come to you this afternoon. We give you praise and honor and thanksgiving. We thank you in the context of a holiday weekend that we have freedom to worship and publicly pray to you and to seek you together as a church. Enjoy your blessings. We also pray today in the context and the aftermath of a tragedy in our own state, a reminder of the severe brokenness of humanity and the evil that can be inside us. We pray, Lord, for your grace and your mercy to be poured out through your people, through your Son. We pray for your gospel to provide hope, for your church to show the love of Christ, for your word to give peace to those who turn to you. In a tragic time like this, Lord, we ask that you would be gracious to the families of Uvalde, especially those who lost their precious young ones this week. We can't imagine the tragedy of that. But Lord, we know that in every brokenness still you are good. Lord, would you, through this tragedy, draw people to yourself through repentance and faith to live in light of eternity? Lord, would you Inspire your people to want to spread the good news of the gospel and eternal life with any and all who would hear and believe. And Lord, we pray because we know that this is not how things are supposed to be in this world, but you are good and you are powerful and you are sovereign and you have made things right in Christ. And so we trust you and ask for you to do what is right as you always do as the king of this world. Lord, this time is for you. We ask that as we come and submit to your word that you would feed us, your people. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Second Samuel, chapter 5. Um, as we turn our attention there, um, I want to reiterate that at Zoe, the reason why we are so stubborn about preaching the Bible every week, even when things are happening in the world around us, is because we believe that the Word of God is utterly, powerfully relevant always no matter what. And it's our job to teach the Bible. And as Pastor Jesse is on sabbatical for the next few months, uh, and you guys should know that he really does put a lot of work and, and effort into the preaching, and we're thankful for that. But it's not about the man, it's the message, it's the Word of God that is important. It's our job to teach the Bible and let God's work do, God's Word do its work in the lives of God's people. And so we aren't wanting to ignore the things around us, per se. We, we, we know that there is always things going on that affect people's thoughts and well-being. But as we look at today's passage, what we want to see is that true lasting hope that we can have in light of these things comes when Jesus is our king. How are we going to see that this afternoon? Well, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, we've been in this book for a little bit. Uh, we're going to see a passage where David finally becomes king. He's finally installed as God's rightful king. And the reason that this is so important is because of this simple fact that the Bible tells us over and over again, especially in this story, that whoever is in charge in your life will affect your life a lot. It makes sense. 
right? Um, I was reading this past week a study where they were looking at workers' kind of life satisfaction, trying to figure out why are so many people leaving their jobs, changing careers. And, and as they were studying it, interestingly enough, one of the most surprising factors in a person's overall well-being was their relationship with their boss. Maybe that doesn't surprise you, but uh, it really made sense to me. And this means that if you have a bad boss in particular, it can make life really hard. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. One of my first bosses when I was in college still was a man who seemed pretty harmless at first, okay? Um, he, he was a, a quiet guy. He was actually um, blind and he was in a wheelchair, so he was pretty um, soft-spoken. He didn't really uh, um, get into too much at first, but when you got to know the real him, he was really scary. And when things were pushed past a certain point, he would just kind of go off on whoever was around him. And I don't know if you have a boss like this or ever had a boss like this, but it can be a frightening thing. One time I had been scheduled to come in, but I changed my work schedule at the very last minute. Okay, I logged on online. I erased the time I was going to be there at work. Now, my fault. Okay, I was not a good employee, I admit. But I was unable to help him when he was looking for someone to do a particular job. And the way he responded was absolutely terrifying. According to my coworkers, it was the angriest they had ever seen him. And he was yelling not at just the coworkers, but he was yelling at the other bosses. He was cussing them out. He was cussing me out in absentia. And as a college student, when I heard about what happened, I did what any good college student would do. I just called in sick for the rest of the week. Right? I was like, I'm not going back into that fire. The truth is having a boss can be a dangerous thing. Your boss can affect your job and your life. And so I think as we look at this passage, uh, when we think about the idea of kingship, I think the truth is a lot of us may honestly say that we don't really want a king, right? We don't really want someone else to be in charge of us. And then we've been talking about how David is God's chosen king. He's the right king. He's going to become the king after Saul. But maybe you find that idea a little bit hard to stomach because truthfully, when you think about having a king, you wonder what good is a king anyway? Well, if that's the case, then this passage speaks directly to us. To answer the question, what good is a king, we need to understand and apply and, 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 and look at how David acts when he becomes God's chosen king. So 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 16, we're going to break this passage up and study it in three parts as we consider how God's king fulfills the Lord's promises, defeats the Lord's enemies, and finally blesses the Lord's people. First, what we're going to see in this passage is that God's king fulfills the Lord's promises. Look with me at verses 1 through 6 of 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Now, just by way of recap, as we get to this passage, we've had a whole 
story happen already. We've had a whole mini civil war happen in the nation of Israel after Saul's death. And if you don't remember, David, he tried to broker peace with the other tribes. So he's ruling over the tribe of Judah where he's from, but the other tribes haven't accepted him as king yet. And there's this little civil war that happens. Abner and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, they fight against David for a while, but eventually Abner comes to terms with having David as the king. And Ishbosheth gets murdered in his sleep. His two captains bring the head of Ishbosheth to David. They want to kind of earn brownie points with the new king. And everything is just kind of in this state of confusion, okay? Uh, people are wary and they're worried about what's going to happen to the nation. Maybe you have felt the same way at times. Things haven't gone the way that anybody had planned. I think if you were to time travel, right, back to 1 Samuel 16, when David was a little boy, getting anointed to be the next king of Israel. And then you were to kind of jump forward, kind of like imagination station style, if you know what I'm talking about. Jump forward to now when David is supposed to be the king and all these things have happened. You would say that things have gone off script. It isn't the way that you would have guessed it would happen. But finally, in verse 1 of this chapter, David is becoming king. That's what we see. Finally, after a book and a half, David is becoming king of Israel. And as the people come to David, they point out three reasons why They want him to be their king now. One, he is their relative. They say he's an Israelite, and though there was a war, the bond was not severed. David, as he treated Abner and Ishbosheth with honor, he kind of kept alive that connection with them. And so they say, You are bone and, and, and flesh, right? You're part of the family. Two, they say that he was a great military leader. They say, When Saul was still king over us, in verse two, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And these terms are military terms. Basically, David was the commander of the army. He, he went out and went in in front of the army of Israel. He is a war hero, they're saying. They're remembering the good times when David was a leader of all of them. And then thirdly and most importantly, what we see in this passage is that the people of Israel recognize and confess that David's rule is the fulfillment of God's promises to him. This is what we need to notice in this passage. Look at verse 2 in the end. The Lord said to you, the Lord promised, basically, that you shall be shepherd and prince over Israel. Now, when did this happen? It happened all the way back when David was anointed for Samuel 16. It happened by the repetition of Jonathan and Saul talking about how David would be king. David's reign, according to the people of Israel, fulfilled God's promises to him. And if you've been following along, it's a cool scene because it's kind of like this culmination. Finally, David is a recipient of all these promises that he had heard about before. Even though he had gone through a lot of opposition, even though there had been people who wanted to kill him multiple times, even though he had to get exiled and come back, God's promises were never thwarted. And so his coronation is a fulfillment of the promises of God to David, to Samuel, who anointed him, to Saul, who the kingdom was taken away from. It's a fulfillment to all these people and the promises that they had heard and received. But there's an even bigger promise that we need to understand and see in this passage. David becoming king is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, to the nation as a whole. All this takes place in the first few verses in the city of Hebron. Now, Hebron, we've talked about, was David's capital at this point. But it was an important city historically as well, because that was where Abraham was shown all the land that God would give to his descendants. David's anointing at Hebron, which is said twice in verse 3, right? In Hebron, tells us that David is going to help bring about the promises of God to Abraham that had been promised centuries ago about the descendants of Abraham inhabiting the land 
and becoming a great nation. So look at verses 4 and 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is a formula that we're going to see in scriptures from this point forward, a formula to introduce a king's reign, how old they were then when they became king, how long they reigned, and then followed by some of the highlights of what they did. And so a connection is being drawn here between Abraham, the promise he received, and David and the rule he will have in Hebron and Jerusalem. David, God's king, fulfills God's promises. This takes us to the beginning of verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. I already said that David in Hebron is a reminder of God's promises to Abraham. But in case there's any doubt, the phrase inhabitants of the land makes it clear. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 15. I want to show you this so you can see it for yourself, that there are connections all throughout Scripture because this is God's word. This phrase is a callback to something earlier in the Bible. Now, in the Pentateuch um, and in the book of Joshua, there are many times when God says that he is going to drive out the inhabitants of the land, this exact phrase, from the place of Canaan so that the people of Israel can take the lands that they used to live in. But all the way back in Genesis 15, here's a cool thing. When God promised to Abraham that he would give the land to his descendants, he listed out all the people that he was going to get rid of before them. And starting in verse 18, he says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so we see Jebusites in 2 Samuel 5, 6. We see it in Genesis 15. The last ones mentioned by God, the final group that will be driven out, literarily speaking, is the Jebusites who live in the city of Jerusalem. So 2 Samuel 5, 6. David becomes king as God has promised. He's fulfilling God's promises to these individuals and also to Abraham and to the nation of Israel. In Hebron, referring back to the patriarchs, and his first notable act is to drive out the people God promised Abraham to drive out 800 years ago. It shows us simply that God's king fulfills the Lord's promises. You ever feel like promises take a while to come true? In this story, it's been decades, okay, literally decades since David was anointed king. It might have seemed like God had forgotten his promises. It had been centuries since God had said to Moses and Joshua that they would take out all these people from the land and they would take it over. It might have seemed like the promises of God were forgotten. It had been over 800 years. It's crazy. Since God promised to Abraham that his descendants would inhabit the land and become a great nation. It may have seemed like God's promise was forgotten, but what the author of 2 Samuel wants us to know is that even over hundreds of years, the promises of God are always true. And it is his king who helps bring them to fulfillment. And as he goes against the Jebusites, this leads us directly into the next part of the passage, where we'll see that in fulfilling the Lord's promises, God's king also defeats the Lord's enemies. God's king defeats the Lord's enemies. Let's take a look at what happens as David goes about finishing this job of clearing out the inhabitants of the land, starting in verse 6 through verse 9. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, 
who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. Now, uh, here's what you have to know about kind of how this chapter is working. When they introduce a king in the Old Testament, they talk about how long he's reigned, and they go over some of his highlights. It's not always in chronological order. So there's going to be a lot of details left out at first. First, they're going to talk about what his major accomplishments are, and then they'll go into all the stories that that are important for us to know. And so it's not necessarily out of order, but overall, this is kind of like the Wikipedia highlights of David's life, if you were to look him up in the Bible. So what happens? David conquers Jerusalem. He builds a palace, and his family grows big. Those are kind of the highlights of his reign, and you'll see that as we continue through this book um, and the rest of our study in it. But this conquest of the Jebusites here in Jerusalem is the first thing because it's one of the most important conquests of his time as king. If you look at the story of David conquering Jerusalem, a few things might stand out to you. First of all, you might not have known this, but Jerusalem was not part of Israel up to this point. Okay, so you're familiar with Old Testament, you know Jerusalem's important, but up to this point in the book of 2 Samuel, Jerusalem wasn't ruled by the Israelites. Now, there was a time when they went to war with Jerusalem and they took over part of it, and if you've ever been to the nation of Israel, you might know that there are different sections of Jerusalem, but the part where there's a fortress, this castle part, Zion, it's on the southeastern part of Jerusalem, it had not been taken over. It had never been conquered. The Jebusites lived there for hundreds of years. And then secondly, if you follow the story closely and you look at the actual text, you'll see that there's all this repeated talk about the lame and the blind everywhere. So, so what's going on, right? How do we understand this situation? Well, let me explain it to you through um, video games, okay? Now, I'm not, I don't, I'm a pastor. I don't advocate that you spend all your time playing video games, but I know a lot of you do. So uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Now, um, when I was in college, I would play a lot of this game called Smash Brothers. Okay, uh, the first version. And um, when we would play this game, those of us who, who were proficient at it, we would use certain characters. Right? We would get good at playing with a certain character. Every one of us had a best character that we played with. And we would spend hundreds of hours practicing and playing against one another. It's kind of a fighting game, right? There's a character you know how to use. But sometimes when we really wanted to trash talk someone, when we really wanted to taunt someone, we wouldn't use our best character. Okay, we would use a character we didn't know how to play. In fact, we would call them our secondary character or our tertiary character or our quaternary character or our quinary character. That's how much we wanted to taunt. I looked up the word quinary so I could tell someone how bad they were. And this was the idea. You're so bad at this game that even my worst character can defeat your best. You guys understand? It's kind of like that old playground taunt. I'm going to beat you with my hands tied behind my back. This is what the Jebusites of Jerusalem say to David. When they talk about the blind and the lame, they're saying the blind and lame of our city, the blind and the lame of our stronghold are going to be enough to turn you back. You won't even beat the worst, the the lamest, the weakest members of our society. Now, the question we need to ask is why they are so confident, right? Uh, You know, I'm sure that like many people, they enjoy talking trash, but David is not a weakling. If you guys know the story, David has killed tens of thousands. He's a warrior. 
He's been successful in, in, in so many military conquests. The God of Israel has been with him. Why are they so confident that they're going to talk trash to this guy who has their city surrounded by a nation? Well, there's an answer. The name Zion, which is the first time it appears in the Bible here, it most likely means a fortress on a ridge. It was this military city. It was this fortified city. And the city of Zion, this stronghold, had a history, a long history, of never being conquered. When you study the history and the biblical record, you'll realize that the Jebusites, like I said before, have been hanging out in this fortress right in the middle of Israel for over 400 years. The people of Israel have come, they've taken over the land, they've tried to take over Jerusalem, but they failed over and over and over again. Not for lack of trying have they failed to take over this land, this, this strategic city. And the text tells us this is exact, exactly what they were thinking. They didn't say David is weak, right? That's not what they said. They didn't say David can't do anything. They said, if you look at the text, David cannot come in here, verse 6. David cannot come in here. Not in our house. It's been 300 years. Nobody has beaten down Zion. They're confident in their strength. They're stubborn in their defiance. They think the undefeated streak will never come to an end. And this context is important as we look at what happens with God's king. David, God's king, comes, and the text just says he does what nobody else was able to do. Verse 7, nevertheless, it's so simple, nevertheless, David took it and made it the city. Of David. And as we look at verse 8, it appears that, that what happens is that David kind of has this, this innovative way to attack them. They go up the water shaft that fed the city during sieges to attack these so-called lame and blind defenders. Now, it isn't all spelled out super explicitly, but somehow David and his men, they use a water shaft to get into the city and take it over. And God's king, the author wants us to know, does what nobody thought was possible. Not only does he defeat God's enemies, He takes this stronghold of the enemies of God and he turns it into his capital, the city of David. In verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold, makes it his home. He called it the city of David and David built the city all around from the millow inward. He takes over, he banishes the blind and the lame, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land from it forever. God's king defeats the Lord's enemies. That's what God's king does. You might think of it like the coach of a great sports team, right? Until you defeat the rival school, you can never be considered one of the best of all time, right? You can't be in the pantheon of Texas football coaches if you've never beaten Oklahoma, right? You can't be a great football coach if you're coaching Michigan and you can't beat Ohio State. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. When David defeats Zion in Jerusalem, in the heart of the nation, it solidifies that he is God's chosen king in the eyes of the people. And it's a microcosm of how he's going to defeat a lot of other enemies, how he's going to kind of get rid of every different ite that's living in the land. David defeats the inhabitants of the land and in so doing establishes God's peace, security, and freedom. All this to say that when God's king is in charge, you can be sure God's enemies will be defeated. So God's king fulfills the Lord's promises. He defeats the Lord's enemies. And finally, this passage answers the question of what good is a king by showing us that God's king blesses the Lord's people. God's king blesses the Lord's people. Read verses 9 through 16 with me. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. 
And David built the city all around from the middle inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house or a palace. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Now, these verses, which go over a lot of little details, they serve one overarching purpose. Okay? They want to show us the blessing of the kingdom. They want to catalog the growing blessings and wealth of David the king and the kingdom of Israel. And there are multiple types of blessings you see in this passage. Okay, first there's physical blessing. David builds up the city from the millow inward. Now, the millow, if you go to Israel, you go to Jerusalem, it's sort of this wall that's kind of like a stone structure that they built. It's almost like a large retaining wall to help the city be able to expand um, to, to where everyone lives. And so David apparently helps kind of with this infrastructure project of building the city up so people can live prosperously there. There's a physical blessing. There's also political blessing, right? David has this relationship with the king of Tyre, another country, uh, Hiram. And this relationship politically leads to trade with another kingdom. It leads to the import of goods that helps David build his palace, as verse 11 talks about. And there's a familial blessing. David's family grows in verses 13 through 16. It talks about more sons and daughters being born to him. It talks about the names of his sons born in Jerusalem, or at least born while he was reigning from Jerusalem. And he has this large family. And if you don't know, in the Bible, a large family is a blessing. You know, I know when you see someone with like 10 kids, you're like, whoa, what's wrong with you? Um, but the Bible says it's a blessing. So um, can't miss that. David is blessed. The people are blessed. Things are, are going well. And here's the key verse in this section, verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. You guys catch that? As these blessings flow, the text wants us to know that the king, God's king, isn't concerned about himself. First of all, he knows that he's been exalted for the sake of the people. He is a shepherd. We said in the book of 1 Samuel that David is a man after God's own heart. Here we see that the heart that God loves is the heart of a shepherd, the kind of leader whose reign is for the blessing and good of his people. I talked early on about having a bad boss and a scary boss in college. Well, my first boss out of college was an amazing boss. She was someone who, who absolutely cared about the, the good and the well-being of every employee. And we were going through one of the worst recessions right, of modern times. We were in 2008. Uh, people were losing their jobs like crazy. House prices were plummeting. And she committed to not laying off anyone from this small company. But having everyone kind of take uh, pauses on raises and things like that so that everyone could make sure that they could provide for their families. She used her position to serve us in the family. It was amazing. And David, as God's king, does this on a greater scale. He knows that every blessing that comes to him has been given so he might serve the people of God. It is for the sake of God's people. David, as God's king, lives out the truth that God desires those in authority to use their power and authority and influence to serve those in their care. And again, it's kind of a somber week of news. But you guys may have known that this week there are headlines about churches 
all around the nation where leaders have abused their leadership and used it to harm the people who are supposed to be in their care. Terrible news of leaders who have covered up sin and been the perpetrators themselves of using their position for their own glory and pleasure and sin. God will judge every servant, but we know that any person has the ability to misuse our authority if we think it is for our own sake, if we think it's about us. That's not what God's king is like. David, the Lord's king, has been given victory and exaltation, not for simply himself, but for the sake of God's people. He's been blessed to be a blessing. He's been raised up so he can raise up others. He's been singled out so that he can serve. This is what God wants us to see about God's king. God's king serves and blesses the Lord's people. He keeps them safe. He provides for their needs. He leads them. He represents them. He cares for them. He is a good shepherd. And this is what David's kingship shows us. As God's king, he fulfills the Lord's promises. As God's king, he defeats the Lord's enemies. As God's king, he blesses the Lord's people. And so, of course, the question as we look at this passage and all that we've read about David's kingship in a nutshell is what does this have to do with me? 1000 BC, some guy becomes the king. You know, it's all gone. It's all dust. It's all buried. You have to dig it out of the ground if you want to see it. Well, this passage has a clue here for us as well. As you look at David's family in Jerusalem, there's another detail here that the author puts in verse 13. If you look at it with me, he says in verse 13 that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Now, we know that amassing wives was not what a king was supposed to do in Israel. God said in his law not to do that. So this was against the law of God, against God's guidance. But secondly, the placement of concubines here before wives is particularly meaningful. It's a rare thing. It doesn't happen in the Bible very often at all. This is one of the few times when concubines is placed before wives. And, and there's a subtle reason for that, okay? It's as if the author doesn't want to condemn David wholeheartedly, right? He's not saying David was a terrible king, but he wants us to see the clue that there's still a blind spot in David's life. That as good as he is, he was chosen by God. As much as he wants to serve, his sexual desire would be the way in which he fails to act for the sake of the Lord's people. And we're going to see that in just a few chapters. And while his family grows and is strong, we know that as good as he is, he is not the final king. Like we will often see in 2 Samuel, David is great, but he's not good enough. And as it relates to us today, in 2022, in any year really, we need to know that while David is definitely God's king, he is not the king of kings. For that perfect king, we have to look ahead through David's line to his final future son, Jesus. And so in the time that we have left, let's look to Jesus, God's perfect, ultimate king. First, the Bible tells us that, like David, Jesus fulfills the Lord's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, you guys may know this. It says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. The promise to Eve, right, that, that God would give her an offspring who would crush the serpent's head. Fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. The promise to Abraham that we talked about to make him a great nation that through his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Fulfilled in Jesus through the gospel that brings people from every tribe and tongue and nation under his rule. The promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 which we'll see in just a few weeks to establish his throne forever and ever 
fulfilled in Jesus, David's son, who is exalted and enthroned now at the right hand of the majesty on high. The promise to come again and make all things new, which was given by Jesus himself, will be perfectly fulfilled in the end when Christ returns. So the Bible wants us to know as we look at God's king that Jesus, God's perfect king, fulfills all of God's promises. And so we can trust in him. We need to trust in him. There's nowhere else to turn. Are there any promises that God has made to us? There are in his word. You know, it's kind of funny. If you go to a Christian bookstore, like there's these really popular like God's promises for every season of life book. And it's mostly just the exact same promises with a different cover. But there are promises for you in his word. Promises to sanctify you. Promises to bring the good work to completion. Jesus promises to provide rest if you come to him. Jesus promises that you will experience his presence as he is with you till the end of the age. As a church, where else, who else but us should tell you that you can believe and trust these promises? They will perfectly come true. If David's coronation was the fulfillment of promises decades and centuries old, how much more will Jesus perfectly fulfill every promise in history from God to his people? Secondly, just as David defeated the Lord's enemies, the Bible tells us that Jesus defeats all the Lord's enemies in his perfect time. When David conquered Jerusalem, he took over what would become the most important city in the Bible. Okay, Jerusalem is by far the most important city in the Bible, mentioned more than any other city uh, all throughout its pages from this point forward. It's where David sets up his kingdom, where the people um, are exiled away from, where they return to. It's where the temples, where people worship God, were going to be built. But also where the Son of God would one day come to die on the hill, called Golgotha, for our sins, to rise again. And just as David won a great victory at Jerusalem, the Bible tells us Jesus won the greatest victory over the broken and sinful world we live in at Zion. It's amazing. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, and in our lives, in our lives, he can defeat, and he will defeat sin when he is king. As I think about Zion, this may seem um, like a stretch, but I think it's a valid application of this passage. As I think about Zion, I wonder if we have strongholds like that, of sin in our lives. Right? The people in Zion, were, they thought that David could not come in here. I think you can experience this in your life. You've been a Christian for any amount of time. Maybe you've already experienced this. There's sin in your life that seems like an impenetrable fortress. Forever long, you've been a Christian. You feel like the Jebusites, so to speak, are jeering at you. Right? You cannot come in here. Jesus could do everything. He could take over the rest of your life, but he cannot come into this area. This area of addiction or this area of of sin or this area of failure and defeat. You feel like the lamest and weakest and blindest of temptations can easily defeat you. The Bible says that when the Lord's king reigns, when Jesus reigns, he can and will defeat those things. He can conquer the most impenetrable of fortresses. He will make war with God's enemies, the sin inside you. And it's so amazing. There's this symbol, right? Jerusalem, if you think about it, it was a symbol of failure for 400 years, right? They're in the land, they're doing their thing, but there's this city right in the middle where they did not cast out the inhabitants of the land. For 400 years, it stood as a symbol of Israel's failures to follow and obey God. And yet when David takes it over, it turns into the ultimate eternal declaration of God's victory. 
The Bible says that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem where God will dwell and reign, where Christ will sit on the throne forever. You see, God can take what was once a place of defeat, and he can, and he does, turn it into a monument of victory. And I've seen it in some of your lives, right? An addiction or a strained relationship or besetting sin that, that for so long was, was seemingly unstoppable, which is now by faith in Christ defeated, has turned into a place where Christ is magnified, where you worship, where you give testimony about what God can do. You know, Zoe, we always talk about how we're sinners. Right? That could be a downer, right? Like, man, you come to church and we're going to tell you about how you're a sinner. It's not to get you down only. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself. No, it's only by knowing where you are weak can you then turn to Christ and find his strength. You know, everybody wants to be the king. Everyone wants to be the king of their own lives until they realize that when I'm the king, I mess things up. I need God's king to do this right. Our sinfulness shows us our need for Christ. The Bible tells us that when Christ finally returns, he will defeat the last enemy death once and for all, and he will reign. And leads us to the third and final application. The Bible tells us that just as David, the Lord's king, blessed the Lord's people, the Bible tells us that Jesus blesses the Lord's people today. Jesus' rule leads to the everlasting blessings of the people of God. You know, if you're like me and you grew up in church, or maybe you're growing up in church right now, and you maybe feel like, like everyone out there gets to enjoy life. You know, the people out in the world, they, they get to do all the fun things, and I'm stuck listening to God's rules. Right? I just got to follow what God says to do. I don't get to enjoy the world. The Bible tells us this is natural to feel, right? This is what, what Adam and Eve felt. This is what the younger brother and the prodigal son felt. Yet if this is how we feel, we need to understand that the Bible says that is utterly untrue. There's nowhere in the world more blessed than being part of God's people and having Christ as king. And the grass may look greener in the world, but the Bible says it truly isn't. And the people who have gone into the world and, and run away from the Lord will tell you it isn't. The story of David shows us is that it is a good thing to have a good king. And that means when we have Jesus Christ, the best king in our lives, then we have the best. And we have to believe that as a church. If we don't believe that, then what are we even doing here? Jesus is the best. Remember the Beatitudes? Happy are those. Blessed are those who live under the kingship of God. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, we will have struggles and we'll have problems in this world, as everyone does. But there are blessings to those who know Jesus is king, to those who submit to him as king. In your loneliness, the blessing of the presence of God, the love of the church. In your grief, those of you who have gone through grief, you've experienced this, the blessing of eternal hope and a future in that God will make all things new. In your suffering that lasts forever, the blessing of peace that passes understanding, a steadfast character that grows and is strengthened even as your circumstance stays the same. In your sin, the blessings of repentance and faith to have your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience because of the work of Christ. In anxiety, the solid rock that while the universe honestly doesn't care about you, the God of the universe does. 
He knows you. The one who reigns is not just king. He is father. Brothers and sisters, as good as David's reign was, we must know, we must believe, we must experience that Jesus' kingship in our lives is full of blessings. Not health and wealth in this world with its riches and pleasures. The Bible doesn't say that. Not about these material things, but eternal treasures in heaven that we begin to experience now that can never be taken away as long as Christ lives. So what good is a king? I said in the beginning that when you have a bad boss, when, when someone bad is in charge, it's a terrible thing. It's a dangerous thing, but the opposite is true as well. When you have a great boss, when you have a great president, when you have a great person on top, the things can be surprisingly awesome. And the Bible tells us as we look at the story of David to look ultimately to Jesus. In Jesus, there is blessing. In Jesus, there is lasting joy. There is peace and contentment and hope in the face of sin and loss and sorrow. In the face of a broken world like we live in, the face of terrible news, what good is the king? Well, if Jesus is that king, if we're talking about God's king, then a king really is everything. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to believe your word. That when your chosen king reigns, when we submit to the rule of your king, it transforms our lives in every good way. Father God, I pray that as we respond to your word, you would reveal to us if there are areas in our lives where we, we don't want to submit to Christ as king. Areas in our life where we have a struggle of faith, believing that to, to, to be in charge ourselves or to submit and worship to some idol will somehow satisfy us. Lord, would you reveal those things to us so that we might repent of them and turn to you, turn to your Son, our good, perfect, forever King. I'm going to give you a couple moments right now to pray where you are, to ask God to reveal to you if there are areas in your life which you have not submitted to him, that you would turn in faith and ask for his help to do that now. I'll give you just a few moments to pray. Father God, we know that what this world truly needs is not more of us, but more of you. That though the world may think it's trite to turn to God when we see needs and, 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 and suffering and, and problems, we know, Lord, that that is the only thing that makes sense. Everything good comes from you, God. Everything bad comes because we have rejected you as God and King. Lord, I pray for our church that we would experience the goodness of Christ's reign in our lives, even starting today. Or would you have your way in us for your glory and for our good? 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.